I'm Paul, and this is the Untold Civil War. This is going to be part two of our discussion on the raid on Lawrence, Kansas, with Dr. Will Haynes, Public Engagement Coordinator for the Watkins Museum of History. But before we get into that, we've got some really big news. We have to welcome a new sponsor, 1863 Designs. Are you looking for Civil War-themed graphic design, logo design, historical art, and or hand-drawn art? Look no further than 1863 Designs. Link will be in the show notes. And now, uncase the colors, look to your officers, and let's advance on some untold Civil War. Uh, it's fantastic. You really yeah. laid out that story and did a fantastic job with that. Uh, one question I want to ask, just to clarify, you know, we're talking about what really does appear like a massacre. Uh, you know, those fortifications that people bring up, pretty much unmanned uh, muskets or rifles that you talked about under lock and key. No one has them. Was uh, as far as the Raiders are concerned, was that the one casualty they had during the raid or did they have multiple casualties? Yeah, it's not clear exactly how many casualties they suffered during the entire raid in Kansas. We know of Larkin Skaggs was killed by the townsmen. There was another unfortunate man and his name is not really known. His name may have been McClure. It may have been Kalu or Kalu, we're not sure. But the, the people of Lawrence thought that he was a Confederate sympathizer and that he had helped guide Quantrill's men. So in the days after the raid, they basically had a kangaroo court and they sentenced this guy to death. And the poor guy was strung up and hanged and he wouldn't die immediately. So Union soldiers shot him a bunch of times to kill him. Um, so we know of two people who at least were believed, you know, one of them was definitely a Confederate guerrilla. One may have been on the Confederate side. Uh, this gets us into the story of how Quantrill and his men escaped. Um, they ride south out of Lawrence on the old Oregon Trail, and they head out of town. They burn this small settlement called Brooklyn along the way. Um, they, they attack outlying settlements and kill men here and there on their way. Union troops, though, are rapidly on their heels. This um, force from Kansas cavalry led by an officer named Preston Plum, who in later years was a Kansas senator, are hot on their heels. They fight little running skirmishes and battle, battles here and there. By the time they reach Paola, Montreal and his men turn east and they ride and they reach Missouri. So the majority of them um, make it back into Missouri. Now, as you can imagine, Quantrill is pretty emboldened by this incredibly successful strike on Lawrence and being able to escape back into Missouri. Now, what the Confederate guerrillas had done in previous years was that by the fall of the year, the trees are, are losing their leaves. So they're not as, they're not able to hide out in the bush the way that they can do in the spring and summer, right? They tend to migrate south into Texas during the winter, during the fall and winter. But Quantrill and, and, a, and a group of his men stick around into the fall and they carry out which what is probably the second most notorious guerrilla attack of the war down at Baxter Spring. They ambush um, personal guard of General James Blunt, about 80, between 80 and 100 Union soldiers, and just wipe them out. They attack the town of Baxter Springs. They're repelled in their attack on Baxter Springs. And at that point, remember, these are not regular, other than Quantrill, who has that captain's commission. For the most part, these are not regular Confederate soldiers. They pretty much want to do whatever they want. Right. And there, a lot of them are sort of getting annoyed with Quantrill. He's losing a lot of his supporters. They're like, hey, OK, it's time to it's time to knock it off and go back to Texas, things like that. But we want to go back home and see our families. So a lot of them do end up going down to Texas. Quantrill does continue to be a factor in 
the war in the Trans-Mississippi right up to the very end. He's not killed until May of 1865 in Kentucky. Some of his supporters survived, some of his um, lieutenants survived the war, others don't. Cole Younger and Frank James, who had both participated in the raid on Lawrence, both survived the war and famously become um, outlaws after the war. Um, Jesse James did not join them until 1864. He was a little too young to participate in the raid on Lawrence. But Bloody Bill Anderson is killed in October of 1864. Apparently, he and Quantrill didn't really see eye to eye. Quantrill tried to rein in Bloody Bill at times, and Bloody Bill wasn't having that. So he, he broke off after the Lawrence raid and, and, and carried out attacks with his own group of followers. He is killed in October of 1864, and the Union troops famously basically turn him into Swiss cheese, shoot him up a bunch, and they do what you do when you catch an outlaw and kill him. They prop him up and pose him for photographs, holding his guns in his hand, or holding a gun in his hand. So the guerrilla war, it's weakened, um, as I mentioned, by late 1864 after Sterling Price's raid. It really doesn't end until the war ends in 1865, and some people characterized that outlaw violence that breaks out anew after the war. I mean, you know, the first daylight robbery of a bank in America was in Missouri in the years after, the, you know, in, I believe in 1866, right after the war. That's carried out by former Confederates. Some people have characterized this outlaw violence perpetrated by people like the Youngers and Jameses as an extension of civil war. You know? So the war is like, it's sort of on a spectrum almost on both ends, you know, starts in 1854. The Lawrence Massacre is almost like this, this especially ferocious event. You know, 1863 is a really bloody year for the, the guerrilla war west of the Mississippi, and then it continues into 1865. And you see small skirmishes flare up with the, with the outlaws after that point. An original Confederate prisoner of war letter, a period hard image of a color bearer of the 12th Kansas, complete with crossed U.S. flag insignia on his sleeve, or a artfully tinted hard image of a Zouave of the 8th Missouri. These are just a few of the amazing relics offered for sale by the Excelsior Brigade. Link in the show notes. Well, you mentioned sort of the end uh, for the outlaws, these uh, bushwhackers, the Confederate side. What about Lawrence? What happens to Lawrence? How do they recover? Yeah, um, thanks, Paul. So one of the stories that, that people in Lawrence, even to this day, keep close to their hearts is the story of how the town survived the raid. Now, I have to say, I've lived in a lot of different communities. Lawrence, Kansas has more community spirit than any place I've lived in. The people of Lawrence have a better sense of their own history than a lot of places I have been to. Now, what happens immediately after the raid on August 21st, 1863, is that the survivors come together and they start to rebuild. The very same afternoon, the day that the raid happened, first store in town, because people need things. They need food. They need building supplies. Many of the carpenters in town had been killed in the raid. They're among those 150 to 200 men. But building supplies come in from places like Lebanon. Food comes in from other northern states and from other communities in Kansas. Money comes in. There's a um, builder in Lawrence named Alexander Shaw. He goes down to Kansas River and brings a barge of lumber to rebuild. Um, if you come to Lawrence today, if you, if you drive along or walk along New Hampshire Street or along Vermont Street, two streets like Massachusetts Street, you'll see a lot of structures made out of stone. And actually, you'll see these, um, a lot of stone structures on Massachusetts Street too. But the, the rear of these buildings, especially on New Hampshire Street, um, are very noteworthy because they're all made from, or many of them are made from stone and date to 1864. They're finally, after two separate raids on Lawrence in 1856 and 1863, 
they rebuild with fire resistant material. And you go down Mass Street, you take a walk, if you go on one of the tours that I lead, um, you'll see these historic plaques. And just about all the dates on the buildings are 1864 because um, most of the town was destroyed. But the town rebounds quickly from the raid. This is one of the things that people in Lawrence um, remember with pride. Um, Phoenix, the bird that rises from the ashes, is a symbol for Lawrence. And soon after the raid by 1864, we finally have a bridge across the Kansas River. We finally have the telegraph coming to town. And the town quickly becomes larger and more populous and more prosperous than, than it had been before the raid. And this is a story that's true for the rest of Kansas. Kansas had been in a lot of peril during the Civil War, and it, the men in uniform suffered a lot. Kansas had one of the highest death rates among the troops in service, but it really came out of the war with a booming economy and really ready to take on the challenges of westward expansion and post-war economy. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Looking to improve your Civil War impression? Out of ideas on how to do that? Do you have a core badge on your forage cap? A period-style pipe? Maybe you and the pards would like to pass the time at the next event with period-style poker chips and cards. All this and more, available from the badge maker. Link in the show notes. Wow, that's fantastic. You know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned how connected uh, the populace there is to their history. My next question is, you sort of talked about it. I don't know if want to share those experiences you mentioned before, but why does the Civil War, especially in Kansas, remain so controversial? I mean, it's a pretty hot topic. Why is that? It is a hot topic, Paul. And of course, we don't we, we don't want to exaggerate. I mean, you and me and, and your listeners, we're among a group of people that like live and breathe this stuff, right? I mean, a lot of people are not aware of, of this, of the Civil War history to any um, meaningful degree. But I think, yeah, in Kansas and, and in parts of Missouri, people do still have long memories. And a lot of people do remember the Civil War. Um, and as I mentioned before, the war west of the Mississippi River was very personal. And, you know, historians like Michael Feldman have been really good in explaining how Kansans and Missourians had this animosity, even hatred toward each other, starting in 1854. Because this border conflict had been so brutal, and because civilians had been seen in some cases as legitimate military targets, and I didn't even get into the story of General Order Number 11, which was General Ewing's follow-up to the Lawrence Massacre, which is a very notorious event in western Missouri. These events remain fresh in some people's minds. Going into the post-war years and into the post-war decades, you know, um, survivors of the Lawrence Massacre here in Lawrence, they hold re reunions into the 1920s. And on the other side, members of Quantrill's Rangers hold their own reunions going into the 1920s. And you can imagine how the people of Lawrence felt about the fact that Quantrill's bushwhackers were holding the reunions. 
Cole Younger survives and gets to tell his story. Frank James survives his outlaw days and gets to tell the story of Civil War and being an outlaw from his perspective. You know, a lot of pro-union people present the story as a very one-sided pro-union, anti-Confederate story. And people in recent decades have continued this personal connection with the Civil War. In 2011, just to give one example, the city of Osceola that I mentioned, a town that was raided by James Lane back in 1861. In 2011, the city of Osceola, or Osceola, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, actually passed resolutions calling the Jayhawk a terrorist symbol and urging um, the University of Kansas to drop the Jayhawk as its mascot. And for many years, before 2011, um, the University of Kansas and the University of Missouri had this official sports rival called the Border Patrol. Coach Dan, uh, just to give one example, Coach Don Fambro, KU football team, apparently used to get his players going for games in the locker room by telling them that, you know, whenever there was a KU Mizzou game, that, you know, the Missourians are invading Kansas and we got to beat them back. Um, Jayhawks fans to this day at the basketball games, They'll unfurl like big posters of John Brown, you know, that, that abolitionist fighter from the pre-Civil War days at the KU Mizzou basketball games. So a lot of people come to the museum because they have relatives who lived in Kansas or Missouri during the war. They want to learn more about it. A lot of people are fascinated and they want to learn more about the Lawrence Massacre. By some definitions, I've heard it said that it was the most, the, the, the biggest terrorist act in American history until the Oklahoma City bombing in 1990. That depends on your definition of a terrorist act. You know, some people characterize it as the biggest massacre, the bloodiest massacre of civilians during the Civil War. Again, depends on how you define the Civil War. In recent years, historians have come to recognize how westward expansion into the areas that were still occupied by Native Americans, how that is part of federal war effort, part of Lincoln's administration and its efforts, part of the Civil War. So as an example, in November of 1864, these Colorado militiamen who had been mustered into service as, one of Lincoln, as part of one of Lincoln's troop calls, they carry out this horrific atrocity at Sand Creek against the peaceful Cheyenne and Arapahoe village. They kill up to, the estimates vary, but maybe up to several hundred of Native Americans. So was this the worst massacre of the Civil War era? You know, it's, it depends on who you talk to. It's very exciting for, for me as a Civil War historian because in recent years, and this is where I can get into the discussion of, you know, recommending books for people to read about this whole subject. Historians in recent years have really started to come to grips with the guerrilla conflict. Have you read everything there is to read on the Civil War? You've burned through Shelby Foote and you've reread Sears Gettysburg three times. Want something fresh? Subscribe to Military Images Magazine and have the latest articles on Civil War portrait photography delivered to your doorstep. Electronic editions also available. Link in the show notes. Absolutely. I was just going to say, you know, with all this research, um, what books do you recommend for people who want to learn more? And the other thing is, are they available in the museum's bookshop? Do you have one? I appreciate you asking about the museum's bookshop. Yeah, we, we don't sell a lot of books and we're always really happy when somebody buys a book. So thanks for, for asking me that. So uh, for, the, for a long time, um, Civil War historians basically regarded the guerrilla war, including the guerrilla war west of the Mississippi, as basically a sideshow. You know, something that could be explained away as atrocities committed by bloodthirsty men. Maybe that's true to a certain extent, and I would never claim that the Trans-Mississippi Theater was instrumental in how the war ended. It was 
crucial to the Union victory in the war or anything like that. But all these Western states, you know, of which Kansas is on the is on the periphery or, or you know on the western edge, that you know Lincoln characterized as the great heart of the country, as the great interior. Historians have finally started to realize that this whole western area was was very important in the Union war effort. Now, for a long time, um, the memory of the guerrilla war, to get more specific and talk about the guerrilla war in Western Mississippi, was dominated by popular culture and by authors who were not always very careful about their about what they passed off as facts. There the, there's these two books that really dominated um, this um, subject for a long time, a book by William Connolly called Quantrill and the Border Wars, very much a pro-Union, anti-Quantrill account, although it does have some documentary accounts in it that are hard to find elsewhere, so it still has some value. There's this book by um, John N. Edwards, published, I think, in 1870, called Noted Gorillas, which is very much on the opposite side, very pro-Confederate, pro bushwhack, not very reliable for that reason. Um, some books by Albert Castle, Robert Brownlee, published in the 1950s. They have some good material, but um, another thing that was not touched on for a long time is how crucial slavery and African Americans were to the way that things played out west of the Mississippi River. And again, historians um, in the last 20 years or so have really picked up on this and come to realize how important these topics were. Historians in recent years have, have included, like, Daniel Sutherland wrote a book, Savage Conflict, arguing for how important guerrilla warfare was. Matthew C. Hulbert has several good books. There's this fascinating book um, from, I believe, 2010 by Mark W. Geiger, Geiger. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's called, I believe it's called Financial Fraud and Guerrilla Warfare in Missouri. He basically makes this argument that these guerrillas many of whom are middle-class Missourians or Southerners, are basically convinced to go to war because there's a financial collapse in Missouri um, because of all this financial fraud that's been going on, right? And it ties into slavery as well. There's Joseph Beline Jr. He read, recently edited a book called William Gregg's Civil War. Uh, William Gregg was one of Quantrill's lieutenants before he broke away and, and joined the regular Confederate Army. He has a great account of Quantrill's raid, which he participated in. Um, and Joseph M. Beline Jr., um, a few years ago, published an edited version of William Gregg's memoir. And it also includes a lot of great background material about how people tried to shape the memory of the border conflict and how William Connolly, that historian, kind of screwed over William Gregg and took advantage of him to gain his trust and gain his material that he had saved about his experiences in the war. Um, another recent book by Jeremy Neely is titled The Border Between, between Them is really good. At the Watkins Museum, uh, we have a small bookstore, uh, but we do have um, a book by Nicole Etchison called Bleeding Kansas that's really good. We have a book called Images of America, Survivors of Quantrill's Raid by Katie Armitage that gives a, a lot of great stories of people that were living in Lawrence and survived the raid. We have... Uh, a lot of books about bleeding Kansas. We have more books about civil war, about the civil war, like Albert Castle's Civil War Kansas, which is a sort of a definitive history, a little bit dated, but still has a lot of good material in it. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention two tremendous websites that are readily available that are maintained by friends of mine. The Kansas City Public Library has a great website called the Civil War on the Western Board. And if you go to this website, it has a huge amount of material, original accounts and images all about that conflict 
Northwest of the Mississippi. There's also a website called kansasmemory.org, which is maintained by the State Historical Society of Kansas. And it's, again, it's got a great collection of primary sources, photographs, uh, manuscripts, um, all about uh, Kansas during the Civil War. Are you a fan of the movie Tombstone? I mean, who doesn't love Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday? But have you ever wondered how everything went down from the Cowboys' perspective? The short film West tells that story, and it is available on History Fix. Use the link in the show notes to subscribe. That's fantastic, and I'll definitely put links to all of those uh, in the show notes so people can access uh, those websites and, of course, the website for the museum. Um, now, before I let you go, I wanted to throw a couple curveballs at you. I may edit them in different places. Uh, the first question I wanted to ask was just because people come into history from all sorts of different backgrounds, you being in the New York Guard, how was that experience and did that help you as a historian later on when you read these stories? Do you approach it differently from being in the Guard? That's a great question, Paul. Um, I, I don't know that I can say definitively that my military experience influenced being a historian a great deal. You know, uh, of course, veterans of, active, of the active duty military. You know, don't don't really consider the you know the National Guard or the Army Reserve to be real soldiers necessarily. Uh, um, but when I deployed to Afghanistan, certainly some of the things that I saw or that I felt really did trigger a memory of reading like these accounts by Civil War soldiers being footsore, being very hot, or thirsty, or tired, or even bored. I I kind of say um, quite often that you know the dirty little secret of war that nobody likes to talk about is how boring it is. <laughs> which isn't a great advertisement for your podcast, I suppose. But, you know, everybody who's read um, accounts from the Civil War knows this. There was a lot of just waiting for something to happen. You know, hurry up and wait. Soldiers hanging out in camp. Or, you know, they, they you know, the guerrilla war is a great example. You can't find the enemy in many cases. You know, in recent years, the United States has been waging a counterinsurgency camp in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, where I served. And the enemy can be quite elusive. They're not hitting your strong points. They're trying to hit your weak points. So if you if you go after them with several hundred troops, there's a very real possibility that you won't catch them. And this is uh, one of the things that frustrated Union officers and Union soldiers trying to wage that counterinsurgency campaign back during the Civil War and why they would crack down on in episodes like General Order Number 10. So yeah, I think some of my experiences do, or they did remind me of, of things I, that I had read about during the Civil War. And certainly when you're serving in a, in a, in a hometown unit, like the National Guard unit, it does have some similarities to the Civil War because when you're deployed, when you're called up, whether it's for stateside duty or to go overseas, called up as a unit together. So it's like people who live in a community together. You might know people in your squad, you might know some of them since childhood, you know, or you might work with them on the civilian side. And of course, the Civil War was different from later wars because it was like small town America going to war. These companies were recruited on the local level. So you would have whole, you would have family members. I mean, I don't know about you, Paul, but I knew people in my units in the Reserve and the Guard who were brothers or even brother and sister. And of course, you know, um, you had a lot of coworkers going off together, things like that. And the community Sometimes father cases, and son. Father and son, exactly, yeah. You have communities coming together to support um, the local unit when, when they're deployed. So, yeah, that is reminiscent of what happened during the Civil War. And uh, other question I wanted to ask you, and you sort of kind of got into it a little bit, 
when people who sit down and talk about, you know, military history, and we love, you know, going back and forth, you know, and so many times have I heard, you know, the Vietnam War, that's where, you know, America met asymmetric warfare and the guerrilla warfare, and that's where it all started. Well, after hearing this story, I think that U.S. being involved in guerrilla warfare goes much further back. Yes, um, guerrilla warfare in America goes way further back and way before the Civil War. Now, um, there are some historians today, I think, you know, um, sometimes like we, as historians, we take a new idea, we kind of go too far, with it, right? Because we're trying to push back against the old ideas. And some people have said that the guerrilla war fought during the Civil War was actually, quote unquote, the main event. And I wouldn't go that far. I think, you know, still uh, the main war was fought in places like Gettysburg or in Sherman's March to the Sea, Rich, and in Petersburg and Atlanta, places like that. What happened west of the Mississippi River was not going to determine the outcome of the war, right? Or the guerrilla conflict, while severe throughout the South, I mean, I wouldn't say it was the main event, but yeah, um, guerrilla warfare though, has a long history in America, going back to the, to the initial settlers in the 17th century, the 1600s, even going back arguably to the Native Americans before white settlement. I mean, Native peoples, warfare sort of blended together with hunting as a, as a custom. Right. And as rich, you know, they both had their own rituals that in many cases were very similar, part of the same act. And the, the settlers early on when they come to North America, you know, they're going after, they're fighting a dirty, uh, bitter conflict with the native peoples, you know, attacking their, their homes, their villages, burning down their crops, killing women and children in, in many instances, carrying out what historians call feed fights, like going after provisions, trying to pull out that, that base of support the other side. So yeah, guerrilla warfare in America has a long history. The American commanders and soldiers in Vietnam were facing a counterinsurgency fight. It was by no means the first time they had faced a sustained counterinsurgency. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, I really do hope you can come again and we can do this again. And I definitely want to yeah. visit the museum. Yeah, please do, Paul. I'll be happy to give you a tour on I'll be happy to give any of your listeners who come out here to Lawrence a tour of the Watkins Museum. Thank you for listening while commuting to work, relaxing after work, delivering supplies to City Point, mapping the Army's next advance, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Speaking of mapping the Army's advance, march the same trails as those men who wore the blue and gray. Check out Civil War Trails, who has been very busy, by the way, down in Smithfield, Virginia, installing new signs to mark Civil War sites. Stay up to date with our sponsor using the link in the show notes. Do you like what we're doing on here? Would you like to see more topics covered, like World War II, Korean War, heck, even pirates, then check out The Tactical Historian. It's an increasingly popular show on YouTube, hosted by yours truly. But bye for now, and I hope you tune in next time for our next episode.